0: So we can get briefings now about what are the emerging threats, what do we need to look out for, what is the actionable information that we need to take to make sure our systems are protected. There's information sharing that goes on now. So if a system is hacked in a tiny little locality somewhere, if there's uh, malware, uh, if there's a, a ransomware attack, we may not know exactly where it occurred. We don't need to know that. We just need to know what is the threat and how do we protect against it, right? So we're able to share that information now.
1: You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of the American Enterprise
2: Institute. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. This is a podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Our guest today is Secretary Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. She is the Secretary of State of New Mexico. She's a 26th Secretary of State, and she was elected in December of 2016. She also served as the county clerk of Bernanillo County from 2017 until she took the reins in New Mexico. Of interest to our viewers, she was also the immediate past president of the National Association of Secretaries of State, and she served as the president of the National Association of Secretary of States, which we will call NAS, That is sort of the group of chief election officials and secretaries from across the country. She's a longtime New Mexico native. She's always been involved in public policy and in politics. And I want to welcome you to the voting booth. Thank you for being with us, uh, Secretary Toulouse-Oliver.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
2: Well, let's start. Don
1: mentioned NAS, the Secretaries Association, and you have been very involved. From your perspective, the secretaries are looking in two thousand twenty-three. What's on their mind? What are the big issues on uh, the minds of secretaries of state?
0: Well, I think twenty twenty-three and heading into twenty twenty-four, we're focused on a lot of the same things we have been focused on for the last six years. In particular, we're concerned about election security. We're concerned about making sure. Our systems are protected from outside sources, right? You know, potential hacking, cyber threats, things of that nature. That is an ongoing concern and effort. We've gotten better and better at it as a group of election officials over the last several years. Of course, the the emergent and I think most urgent threat that we are facing is not just mis and disinformation in all its forms, which, you know, as we know, came to a particular head in the 2020 general election continues to this day, but in the form of artificial intelligence, right, the sort of new element that we are all contending with, and, and what is that going to look like? And how is it going to potentially impact the 20. 23 elections, there are a number of elections going on around the country this year. And of course, especially the 2024, the big presidential election. And as always, we are concerned with and concern is not the right word, but we are interested in sharing our best practices with each other, ideas, ways that we have developed in our own states to do things better, to make the election process better in whatever way you want to value that. And so that is sort of, I think, probably at the top of most of our minds, those three areas heading into 2024.
2: So, Madam Secretary, you've served at the local level. We've talked a little bit about that. And now you're Secretary of State in fact, you were, as we said, president of NAS for a while. What's the difference between the jobs? Is there more or less pressure at the state level than at the local level, where it's actually being administered?
0: Well, I think they're two very different jobs. Certainly, the the knowledge, the boots on the ground knowledge that I developed over ten years running elections and the largest jurisdiction in my state has served me incredibly well in my role as Secretary of State because I do understand what our local election officials need, the tools, the technology, the guidance, the funding, right, all of those things. But Secretary of State is is such a different job from county clerk. And first of all, because we do more than just elections, even though I would say elections takes up the vast majority of my personal time on the job, because elections are so closely watched and scrutinized. And because beyond just executing an election process, I have to make sure that we are getting all of the ducks in a row in advance, well in advance before Election Day, for the county clerks to be able to utilize the procedures, the tools, the systems that my office is charged with. And so beyond being just concerned about, you know, my particular county and my particular county's needs, I now have, and I realize I'm fortunate compared to a lot of my colleagues, but we have 33 counties in my state. So now I have 33 counties, right, to be concerned about, plus all the other duties and obligations of my office, that were not part of you know, the work that I did as county clerk. It's a much bigger, meatier role. There's much more policy development and implementation. And as much as county clerks or local election officials have to do the planning and preparation months and years in advance of elections, we back up even further. We have an even wider area of activities that we have to engage in. So it's definitely a harder job. <laughs> I would say.
1: So let me ask you, I think in the I'll end up asking you about the longer term, but just let's think about the 2020 election, which was a unique election. And there were a lot of changes made around the country, some of them temporary in response to the, the COVID situation, but some of them might be things that stick or some things might change back. So talk a little bit about the types of things you and your colleagues were doing in that 2020 election, and then where you see going forward, what's going to stick and what's going to go back to to pre-2020.
0: When I think back to the spring of 2020, when the COVID pandemic was hitting this country in earnest and we had primary elections happening in that window and we were all scrambling to figure out how to run these elections in a way that was accessible during the worst pandemic in our country and the world's history in 100 years. The thing that stands out to me the most was the massive pivot toward vote by mail. And as we know, just to speak to the elephant in the room, of course, that became very controversial. But it was sort of the no-brainer logical election administrator decision at that time where you saw many states say, feel like New Jersey is a good example. New Jersey was a state that did about as much vote-by-mail as any other no-excuse vote-by-mail or absentee state, literally shifted entirely to vote-by-mail during that election. And so there was a lot of heavy leaning on our colleagues, such as former Secretary of State Kim Wyman in Washington, the secretaries in Oregon and Utah, the lieutenant governor there, who had that experience with having run all vote-by-mail elections, 100%. So we did see some of that happening. We saw other states like mine and Louisiana not going full vote-by-mail, but mailing applications for an absentee ballot direct to voters without a solicitation for that, just letting folks know that was an option and trying to, you know, push folks in that direction because we were concerned about, you know, social distancing. Remember when that was a thing we all talked about all the time and making sure we didn't have too many people's pa- too many people packing polling places. So we also had to scramble to find that you know personal protective gear, those masks, that hand sanitizer, the lysol in some places erecting the um, the plastic guards between a, a poll worker and a voter. So we were scrambling to find supplies that we had never had to find before and doing this incredibly massive heavy lift on that. So to answer your question about what do I think is going to stick, I think, I'll use my state as an example. We passed a temporary provision that summer that included a lot of sort of ways of doing things differently in our state around making it easier for folks to cast an absentee or vote by mail ballot, making it easier for our Native American tribes and pueblos to be able to manage both, you know, many of them were completely locked down during the COVID pandemic, but they still wanted to provide those voting options for their voters, and our laws were really sort of tying their hands. We have recently, in this year's legislative session, made those provisions permanent. And states like New Jersey, rather than just temporarily going going to all vote by mail, is now an all vote by mail state, right? So we've seen some of these provisions become permanent. That's not the case everywhere, and in all cases. And as, of course, we should also acknowledge there are some states that have actually changed their laws, making it a little less accessible, right? Not as many early voting days, you know, readdressing the the requirements around vote by mail and, and sort of maybe raising the bar on what it takes to get a ballot in the mail and things like that. So we have seen a lot of changes since 2020.
2: Madam Secretary, one of the issues as we go into 2024 is that there's been a lot of turnover. You are at a county clerk's off meeting right now. You're addressing and preparing for this year and for next. Has there been significant turnover in New Mexico? And is that sort of a learning curve that you're working with your county clerks right now?
0: I think we're really lucky in my state compared to some others. We seem a little bit more insulated from that issue than a lot of my colleagues are. I'm looking around a room of 33 county clerks and their chief deputies and staff, very little of whom have changed over other than due to elections since 2020. We do have next year, 2024 is the year where almost all of our county clerks in New Mexico are up for election or re-election. We do have folks that are retiring. They're going to be retiring out of the business altogether. Many of our smaller counties, you see these legacies of a a clerk and a chief deputy clerk that after their eight-year term, you know, they swap over and they they have that institutional knowledge, understanding of the community, how elections run there. And they've been sort of tag team running the elections in their county for decades. But we do see people now going, you know, it's time. So we are going to have, I think, a new class, you know, significant number of new county clerks coming in, new folks into the election world. And that is sort of like a down the road challenge that we are anticipating having to work through like many of, of the other states have.
1: And maybe I could follow up on that question. Some are worried. Our climate has gotten uh, tougher, that election officials are facing more criticism, sometimes criticism that goes way over the line and, and in other ways just some look at for some more transparency. I know you've been involved some with some efforts to, to help protect those election officials. Tell us a little bit about that and then also tell us for people who want to know more and be more involved as outside citizens to to observe, to see the transparency, what's the proper balance and what are election officials doing to allow some of that to go forward in a, in a productive way rather than an unproductive way?
0: Well, I think, John, you just kind of hit the hammer on the nail, right? This is the challenge that we have in our democracy and in our elections community moving forward. So first and foremost, yeah, the I think the incredibly polarized and, and toxic national political environment that we are in is certainly trickling down deeply into the state level with elections and election administration in particular at the sort of forefront of these political challenges and contexts that we are living in right now. As you rightly point out, many election officials have been threatened, harassed, And it takes a lot of different forms. I mean, it can look like nasty comments on social media. It can look like threatening comments on social media. It can take the form of direct calls. As you all know, in my state, we had a really terrifying situation with an individual who lost his election last year, who actually committed drive-by shootings of elected officials in our state who had, you know, some bearing on, you know, certifying the election, etc. So it really runs the gamut. Something that's less obvious is the way in which election officials are sort of being harassed. And this really ties together with the transparency, but through the public records process. And I hate even saying those two things in the same sentence because they—it seems so counterintuitive. But the weaponization of just cutting and pasting forty-five thousand, you know, records were the same records request, right, to different offices. This is happening all over the country, not just in my state, and it's happening at the state level, local jurisdictions, you know, some of whom only have a handful of staff total, and they're trying their best to be as responsive and as transparent as possible and and to give people the documents and the information that they have the right to but to be able to balance that with doing their otherwise necessary daily duties has been a huge challenge. So in my state, we've done a few things and and they look similar to things that other states have done or are doing. We did increase penalties for harassment and threats towards election officials. So that goes from me at the very top all the way down to the poll worker or the messenger who's you know helping deliver equipment or ballots or what have you. So any person that's working in the elections at any level in our state, if you are threatened or harassed, Whoever does that is going to really face a serious legal threat, criminal prosecution. We've also really tried to clearly define, okay, if you want information from our office, we want to give you that information. But we need to make sure we're protecting the privacy of the voter. So your birth date, your social security number, how you voted as an individual, we want to make sure that's always protected while at the same time providing information that's useful and that's folks have the right to. So we've done a lot of clarifying around that as well as saying, you know, we're not going to give you the, the keys to the castle. We're not going to give you our cybersecurity threat assessment, right? We don't want hackers to know how to hack into our systems. We're going to keep that internal. But we're going to give you as much information as we can safely give publicly about how our systems work. What is sort of the most useful information without giving away the way that you would be able to actually cause damage in the system. So this has been challenging. We're doing our best we think that the bills we passed this year to address these issues strike a, a healthy balance between security and accessibility. But I think it's something that we're gonna have to continually refine and continue working on over time because the landscape shifts over time.
2: Madam Secretary, we talked a little bit about voter confidence and sort of the, you know, the trust in the voting equipment. This has been an issue ongoing for years. And as you know, as the chief election official in New Mexico, there's voting systems in place that have been tested and certified, but there's a new generation of voting systems that may be down the road after the next election. How do you see that transition going and how are you communicating that bridge from sort of this generation of systems to the new generation?
0: Well, thanks for the really good question, Don. Like all states, is a little bit unique in terms of how we navigate this For one thing, we are a state that actually has the Voluntary Voting System guidelines built into statute here. So yes, the Voluntary Voting System guidelines that you all at the EAC promulgate are voluntary, but in my state, they're mandatory. As you know, you you all recently adopted a version 2.0 of those Voluntary Voting System guidelines, something you all have been working on for a really long time. We're really enthusiastic about them. And as you all know, (laughs) we don't have a system yet that exists that has been tested to that standard. And as we get closer to, obviously, elections that are going on around the country this year, but even for next year, probably most places, I would say 99% or 95% of jurisdictions are not gonna have BVSG 2.0 systems yet. It's we're you know, it takes a long time because we do our due diligence, because we the vendors test to the independent test labs and then we review those in my state, those tests, and we actually have a committee that is entirely comprised of people knowledgeable about elections and technology who review those and make decisions about whether systems in our state can be certified, not only to those federal guidelines, but to our state requirements in addition, right? So what we are doing is we're trying to explain that we have this incredibly thorough process that is not an overnight process for good reason, because people have questions and concerns, because we want to make sure whatever systems we're using in my state are the most secure, the most accurate. And we just we're trying to put out as much public information as possible about the whole process from soup to nuts. It's a challenge, like all of these things we're talking about, because this aspect of elections, just like most aspects of elections, is incredibly complex. And how do you make this information available in a digestible, understandable way to a person who's not an election official or election technology expert? So that's our ongoing challenge, but we we continue to try to rise to it.
1: So Let me take you back to, you mentioned the possibility of, of foreign interference and, and people's worries about how others will try to affect our elections. And of course, that that can be in the social media side, but, but people really worry about, uh, are there foreign or other actors that are able to get access to our voting technology, to the votes itself? You were very involved in an effort coming out of the 2016 election. And- You know, just to put it in context, the Department of Homeland Security declared elections a critical infrastructure. And, you know, that maybe might not have gone so well, maybe in another era, you could have imagined the resistance of states and localities to federal inserting themselves in the the process. How would you describe to people sort of how that process went about? And what types of protections and things are, are in the background now that that voters should know about that makes them feel more secure, that we're in a better place than we were after the 2016 election?
0: Yeah, such a good question, John. And I think as Don will attest, I I mean, two things. Yes, there has been a sea change in terms of how we handle election system security in this country and To your point, John, wasn't incredibly well-received when it first happened. In fact, part of the problem back pre-2017 was that there was not a direct sort of communication link between the Department of Homeland Security and their cyber folks and state election officials. They didn't know who the right people were to talk to in most of the states, I've heard tales, you know, I was a local election official at that time. So I certainly wasn't getting any direct information from the federal government at that point. But you know, I've heard tales of, you know, they're calling governor's offices, and they're calling the state police in those states and things like that. And election officials were totally in the dark, the folks who are actually running these systems. So the first order of business, you know, once I think the initial frustration at that lack of communication and i will give CISA so much credit because they worked really hard to work with us to build trust to build those communication networks in fact one of the things they did and i think one of the things you're referring to here john is they stood up this government coordinating council so every critical infrastructure subsector under dhs so whether it's our electric systems our water systems our elections in this case Has this kind of council. We are the government liaisons with CISA, with DHS advising them on the work that they're doing in this critical infrastructure subsector. What do we need as election officials? What kinds of communication should we establish? What information do we need to be briefed on? We were given shortly after this, we stood up this government coordinating council, which I have been on the entire time. I think only one other secretary of state and I have been on this thing the entire time. They gave us security clearances, right? So we can get briefings now about what are the emerging threats? What do we need to look out for? What is the actionable information that we need to take to make sure our systems are protected? There's information sharing that goes on now. So if a system is hacked in a tiny little locality somewhere, if there's malware, if there's a a ransomware attack, we may not know exactly where it occurred. We don't need to know that. We just need to know what is the threat and how do we protect against it, right? So we're able to share that information now. We have tools from DHS and CISA, vulnerability testing, right? Making sure that we know where we have open doors and what we need to close, and what are the tools that we need to close them. And then we've done things like in my state, and many of my colleagues have developed our state-level election security programs. We were initially funding that program entirely through HAVA federal funds. We've now made that a permanent program. It's in our election code now in New Mexico that we have to have this program always to be able to have bring local resources to bear in addition to those federal resources. And that's, like I said, going on all around the country. And it's really focused at the local level, because like a chain, the weakest link, right, is what you need to be concerned about. Any of the local jurisdictions in my state that don't have what they need security-wise are potentially vulnerable and make our system potentially vulnerable. So this is a lot of the work we've been doing, and it is night and day different. Since 2016, and it's been really positive. It continues to evolve, but I think it's going to continue to remain one of our highest priorities as election officials for the foreseeable.
2: So, Madam Secretary, you mentioned sort of how we protect our our voting systems. Now, a lot of the evidence was that there wasn't any, any sort of intrusion into our voting systems or actually tabulation systems, but there were some intrusions into a voter registration systems or election night reporting, which could cause some disruption but not impact the election count. But there is a movement to better protect those election systems like electronic poll books or voter registration systems. EAC is conducting a pilot for a sort of a testing and certification process for those systems. Do we need to do a better job of protecting those election systems that are sort of separate and apart from the actual tabulation of the ballots?
0: I mean, I think the short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is that To use an example from the 2022 election in my state, we were putting out results on election night on our election night reporting system. And this wasn't even a hack. This was, I think, Someone doubled their numbers on a TV station, right? So we give a feed of of data to the TV stations. They were reporting higher numbers in a, in a jurisdiction than we were reporting on our election night results site. And so even just whatever data glitch or error occurred, I mean, you know, famously, there was transposed numbers in, in a county in Michigan, right, in 2020 that really has the potential to cause concern, fear, worry, are our systems working? So, obviously, everything we can do to make sure mistakes, unfortunately, are always going to happen in elections. These are imperfect systems inherently because we are all human, but certainly anything we can do to prevent intentional misdeeds, right? You know, people going in, people actually changing a voter registration or changing a result on our election night reporting systems, we absolutely should be doing.
1: Let me turn to one other area that people have expressed some lack of confidence. They're worried about the reporting of the election results, the speed of those reporting. And we know that, of course, the the final election, the final certified election results are going to come significantly after Election Day. But what would you say the factors are in terms of being able to count fairly quickly and transparently and to give voters a sense of at least the initial count that that where things are to give them more confidence that that this election is going to be resolved fairly close to the time where votes were cast?
0: Well, to your point, John, I mean, first of all, yes, there are always going to be some ballots that are going to have to be counted after Election Day. You know, if you're a state that Has a a postmark deadline, but a receipt deadline of a mail ballot sometime after Election Day. You're gonna have to wait for those, any provisional ballots that should be qualified and counted. But one thing we've gotten really good at in my state, I wanna just brag on for a minute if that's okay is doing as much pre-work and pre-processing and counting ballots as we can before seven o'clock on election night. We have a window of over two weeks of early voting. We have a 28-day vote-by-mail period. We start well in advance of election day in terms of processing and counting those vote-by-mail ballots. When I was county clerk in Bernalillo, my goal was to have all of the absentee ballots tallied, except those that were literally coming in at seven o'clock, right? You know, we have some coming in from polling places or through the mail. Everything but that was counted and ready to be posted by seven o'clock on election night, which is when the polls close here in New Mexico. The more states that we can see doing that kind of work, and Michigan. The secretary there scored a huge victory in 2022 when she got a day in advance (laughs) to do some of that processing. You know, part of why Michigan's results took so long. And let me just be fair to them. They did it really quickly considering they couldn't start until the morning of Election Day, even opening up those ballots. Right. Right. So I think there needs to be more of of an effort towards the pre-processing of ballots as much as possible, as much as is feasible. You also want to balance, of course, you don't want results to leak out preliminarily before the polls close. You don't want to accidentally affect election outcomes. So you have to keep the security of those results and, and the actual results. You have to keep them confidential. But we've demonstrated here that we can do that. And so I'd love to see more states doing more of that.
2: My next question is about funding. Secretary Toulouse-Oliver, you served at the local level, so you understand, obviously, not only our decentralized way we administer elections, but also the funding mechanisms. We've talked a lot offline about state funding and federal funding and how that can work. How does the federal government have consistent election funding That respects the priorities of local government's priorities or state priorities.
0: And Don, as you know, this has been kind of a controversial topic. I mean, I I definitely have colleagues who they are so against any sort of federal involvement in the election process that they don't even want that funding. But I will tell you for states like mine, states that have challenges with, for example, the digital divide, which is a huge challenge in my state for administering elections, as well as the reality that when it comes to foreign actors involving themselves in elections, that is an issue that we can't combat as 50 individual states and in the District of Columbia, right? That is a team effort. That has got to be a federal effort. So, to your point, Don, about what is needed, what is necessary, and what also respects the individual nature of elections in the states. What I would like to see is a a consistent stream of funding in the federal budget every year. And it doesn't have to be... My state is a smaller state. When HAVA funds come out, I usually get around a million dollars. That's sort of been the average the last several years. We make those dollars last. We stretch them out. We invest them wisely because we know that we may not have another influx of funding. But if we did know... If we did know that year over year, whatever that amount was, it could be as low as 250000 it could be as high as a few million for my state, we could plan better and we could expand our programs. And that's what it would mean to a state like mine. And the way the funding's been coming through in recent years, which is without strings attached, in other words, we're not telling you how to spend this money except in the case of, let's say, this has got to be spent on election security. Okay, we have our ball and we can run with that. Or as long as it's, you know, contemplated within the context of Hava, okay, we know what our guidelines are, but you're not telling us how to spend the money. Otherwise, you're not saying here's what you have to do. I think that's incredibly useful.
2: So just to follow up on that, you mentioned the digital divide, and that's something that I think we're talking about the same thing. I sometimes call it the cybersecurity poverty level because I I would see at the state level a disparity of the local administrators and based on the resources they had available and their ability to be at the same level of administration. And so that's always been a concern of mine is how do we make sure the funds get to all counties in sort of an equal manner so we're on the same, you know, sheet of music moving forward?
0: Yeah, Don. I think there are two different things, but I'll tell you, I think they're highly correlated. So the places where we have less accessibility to broadband internet, are also the places where we see that, as you so eloquently put it, cybersecurity poverty level. The smaller counties, the more rural jurisdictions, there are counties that, you know, as I mentioned, maybe only have a handful of staff in their county clerk's office. Well, they may not even have an IT department in that county. You know, they may have a consultant that they call when the computers go down, right? Or something like that. They may not have somebody physically living in their county. This is reality, particularly across the West, where we have very large, very rural counties that are very not densely populated, right? So you are exactly right. There is a lot that needs to be done. This is part of the work we're doing in my office is figuring out how do we address that cyber poverty level in places that don't have infrastructure boots on the ground. Bernalillo County, Albuquerque, they're going to be fine. They've got a an absolutely awesome IT department that can do probably more than my office can do for them. But we do have counties where we're literally going, well, how do we even get, you know, this updated, you know, software put on these systems to make sure their firewalls are really strongly intact and things like that. So I think the answer is that this is the question and that this is exactly what we're trying to work to do. Lastly, I would just say in my state, you know, we had to do the technology equivalent of putting the mask on ourselves first. So we had to make sure our, our state systems were up to snuff before we could start branching out into the counties. And that's the work that we're doing now.
1: So I'm going to ask one last substantive question before we get to the the two common questions we ask every guest. But the question is here, you actually started your career in elections even a little bit before you were the Bernalillo County in academia studying elections. And I know you worked with Alana Atkinson, who for many years was at University of New Mexico, was one of the first political scientists to really sort of study the field of election administration. So what experience did you get from that? And what would you say about the the types of partnerships that academics and, and election officials have had or the role of data, like how you've seen the role of using data to actually make it improve the way elections work?
0: Well, certainly, my interest in election administration was was sparked during my grad student years. And we talked about briefly before we started the show, I'm I'm back to being a grad student again, I'm, I'm working on my PhD in this area in this field. But I think that because I had an inherent trust and understanding of the value that the academic world could bring to election administration, that independence, Objective look at how things are going and potential recommendations. It's made for really great partnerships in my career as an election administrator. So during the course of coming on 17 years now of running elections in my state, I've worked together with academics every single election cycle to 360-degree evaluate our systems and how they're working and how are poll workers being trained, how do voters feel about the elections, what's their confidence level, do they like this policy or that. It's been incredibly valuable, and naturally, we've shared data in order to gain those insights because they are invaluable. You cannot put a price tag on oh, we know the voters really like this process, or they really don't like this, or they're really confused about this. So we go, okay, well, now we know what we need to improve on. Now we know what we can fix for next time that we wouldn't necessarily have insight into. So I think it's incredibly valuable. I think there's a lot of work to be done building those relationships and that trust level between academics and election administrators. And, you know, that's sort of the new frontier, I think, moving forward.
1: And so now for the final two questions that I, you've answered a bit of the first one, but it's tell us how you got into elections. And then if you were to able to talk to yourself, to yourself way back when, before you got into elections, what kind of misconceptions did you have? What have you learned? What, what are the important things you would tell that earlier Maggie that was really important about elections?
0: Well, we did just talk about sort of my grad student career leading into election administration, but I will say what I tell everybody, which is I'm, I've always been a weirdo. I've always been super interested in elections and politics. My mom took me into the voting booth with her when I was four years old for the first time, and I was always hooked and interested and engaged And so out of high school, I started volunteering and then working my way through college and grad school on political campaigns. And most of the work I did over the years was registering voters, knocking on their doors, talking to them about how, when, and where they can vote, giving them that information. I served on the board of registration in Bernalillo County before I was county clerk. So when the opportunity came to throw my name in the hat for an appointment to the vacant position, I was coming at it as somebody who had spent 11 years at that point, talking to voters, helping them understand how to cast their ballot, getting them registered to vote. So I came in with that side of the equation. And I thought, you know, there there are flaws in the system. There are some really, you know, having coordinated volunteers for 11 years and things like that, I thought, you know, I think I can bring a new perspective and some new energy to this work. And so that really transitions, I think, into the next question, which is what, what would I tell myself before I that first day on the job when it felt like I was drinking from a fire hose, and I thought, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? I do think And Don, you kind of alluded to this earlier in the conversation. But when I came into the county clerk's office, we had just passed an all paper ballot law here in New Mexico, there had been a lot of questions. In previous elections, we had DREs in some part of the state, the direct recording devices where we didn't have an audit trail of how the vote was counted relative to how the vote was cast. And I think that I definitely believed a lot of the sort of what I would call the rumors or the urban myths, if you will, about malintent, that there are election officials out there that are deliberately trying to do something wrong, deliberately trying to change election outcomes. And let me be clear. I mean, we have seen rare examples of that in my state and across the country over the years. It's not to say that that's never happened, but I had a much, I would say, more negative opinion about the integrity, the fairness, and the reality that there are mistakes. See, I said this before, people make mistakes. Rarely, rarely, if ever, in my experience, have I seen them done with malintent, right? It's human error. And so I think a lot gets attributed to malintent that is really just human beings being human beings and looking when these things happen for an opportunity to say, okay, how do we fix this so that it doesn't happen again? Or how do we fix this now? so that we have an accurate election outcome. And I think that's what I would tell myself.
2: So shifting to a lighter note, tell us a funny or unusual story about election or election administration in your career, something that just cracks you up to this day.
0: I have so many stories. I know all of us who were in elections and I was trying to think of my favorite one, you know, I'll throw out a couple. One time we had an individual show up to vote. So at this point in time in when I was county clerk, we had a an early voting site right next door to a liquor store. <laughs> in hindsight, that was not the best spot <laughs> because we had a, a lady come in to vote who was visibly intoxicated. And this is sort of, it's funny, but it's not funny. She got her ballot, went to the booth, filled it out about halfway and actually passed out on the floor. And, you know, so of course, I think this is in some ways, it's a sad story. And in some ways, it's kind of a great story about, you know, our election officials, our poll workers, they were so on it. They saw this happen. They called first responders who got there right away. She ended up okay. You know, she was taken care of. But the presiding judge there went, you know what, I got to put this ballot in the tabulator. And he took her ballot and put it in the tabulator. So she got to vote. And I think, you know, I use this story as an example of of yes, it's funny, you know, but it, it's also kind of sad. But again, it's also just such a great example of we never know what's going to happen at a polling place. We never know what's going to happen in elections. And when you have these dedicated people who just rise to the occasion, we can't train people. How do you deal with it if you have a, a drunk voter that passes out? You know, we're not going to train somebody on that, but just to see them respond in the exact right way that you would want them to. I just, you know, I still love that to this day.
1: Maggie Toulouse oliver Secretary of State of New Mexico, thanks for joining us in The Voting Booth.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprises Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hun Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.